Over the last few weeks, um, one thing that Nell and I have loved doing is watching the TV series Frozen Planet. Has anyone else been watching that? Isn't it fantastic? Isn't it phenomenal? I mean, it's the, the one scenes that I remember really well is, is when they've gone under the ice, the kind of you know, thick ice, and the colours, just stunning, just incredible. Um, for me, watching those Attenborough programmes gives me that kind of wow factor, that thing that makes me just go, wow, that's incredible. Um, there are a few pictures going to appear on the screen now. This um, is the Northern Lights. I'm not even going to try and pronounce the scientific name for it. Um, the Northern Lights over Iceland. Um, the next photo. This is Yosemite National Park in California. Are these the kind of things that make you go, wow? What's the next one? The detail of something beautiful but small. Is that the kind of thing that makes you go, Wow. And we read this psalm about God's creation, about his glory over all the heavens. We're encouraged to look at it and go, wow. Wow. Look what I've seen. Wow. It takes my breath away. And watching something like Frozen Planet, seeing the interactions of the animals, seeing the incredible ability of penguins to survive in the most absurd conditions, it makes me go, wow. God, what an amazing world you've made. Makes me go, wow. This psalm is written by David, uh, it's for, and it falls into the category of psalms that we would call hymns, hymns of praise. It's full of praise for God's greatness uh, and puts his majesty and glory as the pinnacle of the psalm. That's what it's about. There's a, a little poetic device called an inclusio, which is at the start and the end. The same uh, thing, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we see that in verse 1 and in verse 9. I think also, as well as being a hymn of praise, it's one of those psalms that speaks directly about creation, a psalm of creation that, that, that celebrates, if you like, what God has made and how God is seen in that. Because throughout the Bible, the glory of God is celebrated in creation, in the natural world. In the Genesis account, we see God made the heavens and the earth and all that's in it. And he looked at it and said, this is great. This is very good. He was pleased with creation and reveals his glory through it. So let's start with the first couple of verses that we talk about, the uh, the majesty of God. The psalm is bracketed with this phrase. I've just said, O Yahweh, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The name of God connected to what he has made. And it's the central theme of the psalm, uh, the majesty of God. The glory and majesty of God is found everywhere, even above the heavens. It's not just in the place where God dwells, in the heavens, but all over uh, the universe, the created order. The glory of God shines around. And I think when we see those scenes that make us go, wow, it's because we're seeing something of the glory of God. I think when we see... um, Whatever it might be, the the, the stunning vista in front of us, whether it be an animal we've never spotted before or something that just captures our attention and we go, wow, it's because we've seen something of the glory of God. But however, in the psalm, David talks about God's glory is opposed by many. You know, go straight into this, you know, O Lord, O Lord, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, You've exalted your glory above the heavens and to silence the foe and the avenger. Well, what's 
that about? You know, I think when David's writing this psalm, he's, he's looking at a time in history when he is opposed, when he's chased down, where he is, um, where he is kind of under pressure. And he knows firsthand the, the kind of the job of the foe and the avenger who are looking to take away the glory of God. You know, in, verses, in verse 2, um, it says this, You've taught children and nursing infants to give you praise. They silenced your enemies who were seeking revenge. And you know, God's response to those who oppose him, God's response to those who want to take away his glory, isn't to shine brighter, isn't to match strength with more strength, which of course God could do, being God and being almighty. He doesn't need to kind of turn up the volume. He doesn't need to turn up the brightness. All he needs is a tiny baby to shout his praise. The gurgling of an infant is the picture here is enough to silence the enemies of God. Because God doesn't need our strength and our power and our arrogance and our might to do anything for him. All he needs is the gurgling wonder of a small child. Jesus himself quotes this verse when he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to expose the enemies of God in Jerusalem who seek to silence others who are praising him. And you know, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He says this, um, God uses the weak things of this world to shame the wise. God delights almost to take those things that we would dismiss, that we would lay aside, that we would pay no attention to, to bring him praise and glory and to show up the arrogance of humanity. You know, children get the wow factor better than we do. It's not difficult to make a child go, that's incredible, I've never seen anything like it before. And I think this psalm encourages us to to capture once again something of that childlike appreciation of God. The simplicity of just enjoying those things around us. You will see at Christmas all the time, everything is exciting to a child. Particularly for the first time. The opening of presents, the food, the tree. The wow factor is easy for a child to get. And maybe for some of us, we've lost that ability. We've lost that childlike recognition and praise of God. Because life's too complicated. Or maybe we've made it that way. God wants us, I think, to capture something again of that childlike response to him. Do we say wow when we come into his presence? Verses 3 and 4 talk about the insignificance of man. You know, let me just read those verses to you again. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have set in place, what are mortals that you should think of us, mere humans that you should care for us? You know, when I was a child, maybe some of you relate to this, my dad took me outside. I remember it, I was probably seven or eight, went outside and dad had bought me for Christmas a pair of binoculars and one of those Patrick Moore stargazing guides. Did anyone else have one of those? And, and he took me outside and introduced me to the kind of constellations. Um, the plough, the great bear, the little bear, the north star, and um, I'm trying to think of them all, Orion, Orion's belt, and all those things. And so whenever we could, I'd go outside and want to look at the stars and just explore the universe. And for me, I didn't think anything more than it was just exciting to see these things in the sky that made shapes and you could spot patterns and try and find them. It was that kind of curiosity. And maybe for David as a shepherd boy, he did the same, maybe not with the Patrick Moore guide and the binoculars, but you know, he would look up and go, look at this, the heavens above, that is incredible. And maybe that's where David got his wow factor from. 
You know, verse 3 seems to indicate that he meditated on it, that he looked at the night sky, and for him that just pointed to this amazing creator. It pointed to that amazing God that he followed, that he worshipped, that he interacted with on the hillside. But, you know, when we consider the vastness of our universe, when we think about how far and wide we can see and how that's only a tiny fraction of the universe that we even know about, it's easy for us just to think, to be reminded of our insignificance, isn't it? To think, goodness, I really don't matter in the scheme of things. I'm such a small part of such a big thing. And in Isaiah, I think he captures something of this kind of tension. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 to 26 says this. God is speaking. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Perhaps when we've had that wow moment, looking at the night sky, looking at something in creation, our next response is to go, goodness, I'm so small in all of this. I'm such a tiny, frail, fragile part of all that I can see. If God is so great and awesome and he made the heavens and the earth, how on earth can he remember me? How on earth would he even see who I am? And it seems like David is questioning God, asking God that question. Would you even notice me? What are mere mortals that you would think of us? What are mere humans that you would even care for us? I've seen the sky, I've seen the wonder. Where do I fit into that? Am I really recognized? Am I really noticed? Am I really important? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever asked those questions? Have you ever felt unnoticed or insignificant? Have you ever thought that you're of little value? Have you ever applied those thoughts to how God might think about you? But I think what David's talking about here is this. He's, he's asking a rhetorical question because he answers it pretty much straight after. But interestingly here, when David asks God, why would you be mindful of us? What he's saying is, how could a God who's made all of this really draw near to, get close to, be involved in the life of one human being? David's declaring something of this wonderful mystery, that this great God knows everything about us. Not only does he count the stars and know them by name, he knows the hairs on our head. We matter to him. That word mindful literally means to draw near to, to come close to, to remember and not forget. To care for is attending to. It's a, it's a practical thing. David's saying not only do you kind of have to look after the complex universe that we live in, but you intimately care for details in my life. When my alarm goes off in the morning, Lord, you know what I've got to do today. Never mind the Milky Way to be concerned about. My job, my family, my concerns, my fears, you know them all. And I think that, again, gives us the wow factor. How can God do that? I don't know, but he can and he does because he loves us, because we're his. You know, God's role for mankind. David's answer to that question in this psalm is, of course, God can. God does. For you made us only a little, <clears throat> for you made us only a little lower 
than God, than the divine. Than, and there's something of a referral back to Genesis here. David is pointing back to the, the, uh, the start of Genesis 1, or midway through Genesis 1, where, where, the writers, where God is talking to, to himself, seemingly, saying, let us make man in our own image. And God wants to put his, has put his print on us. We are made in his image. We are fully known by God and made for relationship with him. And the kind of relationship that we're made for is a relationship where we walk with God, just as God walked with Adam in the garden, where we talk with God, just as God spoke with Adam, and we work with God, just as God worked with Adam. So we walk with him, we talk with him, and we work with him. We are made to reflect the character of God, especially his glory. We are crowned with glory and honour. God who made the stars, the heavens, the ice caps, the, every creature in this world. We are crowned with glory and honour. And that's not to, to say that we can lord it over anything else. It's that God knows us and uses us to reflect his glory. And, and our role is still the same as it was for Adam in Genesis. We are to, to be fruitful in our lives and to steward this world, especially those parts that we're directly responsible for. You know, it applies to our work, our play, our family life, our relationships. And as we do that, we reflect the glory of God. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, says this, Whatever you do, and he, uses, he talks about eating and drinking, whatever you do, eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God. And St. Irenaeus, I think is how you pronounce his name, is a third century bishop. He said this, the glory of God is man or woman fully alive. Isn't that a great quote? The glory of God is man or woman fully alive. And actually, I think this, you can kind of turn that on its head. Is actually that we come fully alive as we glorify God, as we seek to bring him glory in everyday life. So how do we bring God glory? How um, do we reflect something of the character of God to others in this world? I think the first thing is we ensure that we are connected to God. Jesus said in John chapter 15, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. You'll bear, you'll bear much fruit. Have we made time this week to abide with God? If we want to glorify him, if we spend time with him. Moses, classic example, he spent time in the tent of meeting with God in Exodus and he came out and his face reflected the glory of God. I think it was that he was, he was so transfixed on his Lord, they spoke as friends, that he came out and reflected something of the glory of God. Have we just gone for a walk somewhere and reflected on the greatness of God in creation? For many, that's a great way of, of meeting with God. Have we spent time just reflecting and thinking and meditating on the word, on the scriptures? How might we capture a wow moment this week? What is it that feeds our soul and helps us to see the greatness of God once again? And maybe we'll just ask simply the question today, how can I glorify you, God, today? How can I glorify you as I parent my children? How can I glorify you uh, in my conversations at work? How can I glorify you in the way I spend my money? How can I glorify you, Lord, this Christmas while I'm eating my turkey? How can I glorify you in everyday life? How can I reflect something of Jesus and his kingdom in my conversations? How can I be creative and bring life to someone else? 
And I think it's really important at this point to talk a little bit about care for the environment. I think this psalm speaks of the glory of God in creation. It reminds us of our call to steward and to tend and to care uh, for creation. You know, we are put in charge of everything you made, David says in verse 6, giving us authority over all things, the sheep and the cattle and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. I think our role in creation matters. I think our role in caring for the environment is a priority. The Genesis creation story and this psalm, I think, make that really clear. Um, We are responsible for stewarding the planet. You know, we read in the news today, I find good news, seemingly, that climate change, the climate change agenda um, for, uh, I think it's emissions, uh, there looks like there's some consensus, which hasn't been seen for a long time. And looks like we're heading in a good direction, hopefully. Praise God if that's the case. But, you know, next year the UN Treaty on Climate Change expires and new targets have to be set. And wouldn't it be great to be praying for and campaigning for, you know, care for our planet, sustainable growth? And I think that as followers of Christ, we must be at the forefront in setting that agenda. We don't worship creation. We worship the God who made it. And we see his glory in it. So we want to uh, be able to give that to our future generations. You know why? Why do we want to care for creation? Well, one reason, so others can enjoy the wow that we've had. Why do we want to care for creation? So others can have that wow factor when they see those beautiful things that we've seen. You know, it's always the little things, isn't it, that make a difference. It's always, you know, I've got the little recycling symbol up there. It's just the small things that kind of can make a difference. How we, you know, Jesus said, if you're faithful in small things, you'll be faithful in big things. If we we look just to think through how we live, are we living simply? Are we able to um, consume less electricity, less energy, to recycle, to, to give away, to be generous, to eat carefully, whatever that might be? All these things are part of what we do to steward creation because we're given responsibility for tending it because God thinks it's good and so should we. Not just to be uh, kind of abused and used simply to satisfy our own needs. And finally, I want to connect this psalm to Jesus because the New Testament does in many places. You know, it's, this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus quotes it when he in, quotes verse 2 uh, with regard to teaching children and nursing infants to give you praise. The early church applied this psalm to the life, death, resurrection and return of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 says this, in fact, verses 5 to 9. In taking this psalm, it quotes uh, quite a sizable chunk of this psalm and says this. um, Now, when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all of this happen. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, and now is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death for us. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone in all the world. And it was only right that God, who made everything and for whom everything was made, should bring his many children into glory. Through the suffering of Jesus, God made him a perfect leader, one fit to bring them into their salvation. In his incarnation, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Philippians 2, that famous hymn that Paul writes, that Jesus left the glory of heaven 
and came to earth. Jesus embraced humanity, celebrated humanity, born as a baby, in a stable, in a manger, in obscurity. Jesus came to earth to identify, to demonstrate the life of God and how life could be and should be and will be lived. He came to bring in his kingdom, to announce his coming. And one day, and in the time of Advent we remember this, Jesus will return and all things will be put under his feet. Sounds like a terribly dramatic thing, but the whole of creation, the whole of the universe, the whole of the cosmos, one day will come under his control and be the way it should be. You know, because Jesus tasted death for everyone, no one need taste it again if only they would follow him. When Jesus died on a cross and shed his blood for us, for our forgiveness, for our freedom, that we might be friends with God, that we might have a great future, if only we would trust in him. As followers of Christ, we submit to him now. We come under his feet. We sit at his feet. But one day, everything will be as it should be. Jesus will be Lord in all the world. As Psalm 24 says, the the knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And in Advent, we look forward to the day when everything is placed under the feet of Jesus. We eagerly await his return and his reign as king. We look forward to him making all things new and ushering in his kingdom. And the psalm ends as it began, declaring the majesty of God in all the earth. Do we today need a fresh glimpse of the glory of God? Do we today need a new encounter with him? Do we need reminding of that childlike nature that we come to God as children, keeping that wow factor? Because I believe as we encounter him in his glory, we understand again that he knows us by name. When we pray, Lord, would you show us your glory? He lets his goodness and his mercy and his grace come to us. He reminds us that we matter deeply. Whether there be billions upon billions of stars and galaxies in the universe, he knows what time my alarm goes off tomorrow because he is with me, because he loves me, he's died for me, and he invites me into new life with him.